Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. Well, like Mike said, I'm Ryan Page. I'm the Raleigh Kid City Director, but I think it's actually a little unfair that we start off on an uneven playing field because you know my name, but I actually don't know every name in here, so I'd like to fix that. So what I'm going to do is on a count of three, I would like you to just shout your name to me and then I'll know everybody in the room, okay? Here we go. Ready? One, two, three. See? It's great. Now I know everyone. That's awesome. Thank you for playing along. That's actually something I do in Kid City to warm up to a group of kids, and they seem to enjoy it. I love working in Kid City. I love kids. They are some of my favorite people on the planet. And I'll tell you one of my favorite things about kids that I really absolutely love, and it may be a little bit morbid. It's the brutal honesty. They're filterless communication. Kids just say whatever's on their mind. They don't worry about your feelings. They don't care what's appropriate. If it's in their sweet little hearts, they are just going to say it. Like when my five-year-old leans across his dinner plate, and he puts his hand gently on my wife's arm, and he looks into her eyes, and he says, Mommy, this food makes me feel like I want to spit it out <laughs> and throw up in the toilet. Can you please never make this again? You see, Micah hasn't learned yet what's socially appropriate. <laughs> and kids have no concept of what it means to be politically correct. And because kids just don't worry about those things, they show you who they are without a lot of reservation. And truthfully, when I'm talking to grown-ups, I miss seeing in them what I see so easily in children, which is a raw and vulnerable expression of who they are and what's important to them. Because as grown-ups, we've learned how to keep our emotions in check, haven't we? We learn what's socially appropriate, and we learn, thank God, that you can't react like a toddler when you're the dad. But no matter how good you get at mastering your emotions, there are times when they will get the better of you. And usually that happens because somebody is poking at something inside of you that really, really matters. We all have things in our lives that just bring the emotion out of us, don't we? You know what they are in your life, and if you're honest, some of them are petty, like how well our favorite sports teams are doing. But many of them are really, really significant, like how someone is speaking to your wife, or when your integrity is challenged, or your virtue is called into question, or when somebody makes a value judgment on how you're raising your children. Yeah. Those things are going to set us off, aren't they? Why? Because they're important to us. They are near to the center of our hearts. And so when somebody brings them up and starts, you know, poking at it, we get moved by that. Have you ever been so moved by that that you get pushed right to the edge of your calm? You know that moment, right? When you just can't not say something because it's too important. You know, in that moment, you're showing everybody in the room that thing that I love so much about kids. You're showing them a raw and vulnerable expression of who you are on the inside and what's important to you. And today, we're going to look at a moment in the life of Jesus when he gets pushed. And we're going to find out together what's really important to the Son of God. And to do that, I would love for you, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, to open it now and go to Luke chapter 15. And while you're turning there, I'll set the context. Luke chapter 15, by this point in the story, Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry, which means he's been about this for almost three years now. In fact, it's only two chapters from here before Jesus starts heading to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where Jesus goes to die. 
So, in these chapters of Luke, what we find Jesus doing is one of the things he does best. He's teaching. And listening to Jesus in Luke 15 are two very, very different groups of people. Over here in verse 1, you have the tax collectors and sinners. And over here in verse 2, you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And these polar opposites are listening to Jesus together this day. And I want you to notice something interesting that the writer points out to us right out of the gate. So check out verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. And that word, sinners, it's literally in air quotes in the Bible. It says the tax collectors and sinners. Why are the quotes there? Well, it's because that's what the first group was called. That's what they were known by. But I guess probably they didn't call each other that, you know. They called each other Bob, Joe, Sue, Tommy. Their names, you know, but they were Hebrews, so it was Hezekiah, Jehu, Ahaz, Miriam. So if they didn't call each other that, who did? Yeah, you figured it out. It's the first group. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, the religious leaders are the ones who labeled this first group of people sinners. And the writer of Luke puts it in quotes to identify something very important for us. He wants us to know up front that the second group of people sits in judgment over the first group. That right or wrong, just or unjust, the Pharisees are judging the worthiness of the other people listening to Jesus. They are the sinners and we are not. And understanding that dynamic is fundamental to understanding what happens next. Because the Pharisees say something that changes the temperature in the room. Check out verse two. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now that, that's no innocent statement of fact, guys. That is a dart meant to sting. Clearly, the Pharisees are ticked that Jesus is behaving in this way. But my question is, why? Why? What does it matter to them? So Jesus hangs out with people who cheat on their taxes and who have a colorful past. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is who Jesus is. See, Jesus was known as rabbi. Rabbi is Hebrew for teacher. He, Jesus, is actually one of them. Because in that society, Jesus would not have been predominantly identified with the crowd he was ministering to. Because of his profession and the nature of what he taught, Jesus would have been primarily known as a teacher of the law. And a teacher of the law would never have welcomed sinners into his life because it downgraded his holiness. It just wasn't done by a man of his profession. And so here Jesus is, one of them, welcoming these disgusting people into their lives. And the other Pharisees and teachers have got to be thinking, how could he do that? Doesn't he know? He's supposed to be representing our interests. He's supposed to be catering to our desires. He's supposed to be doing what's important to us. He's doing this teacher thing all wrong. And on top of that, he's making the rest of us look bad. And they hated him for that. And so they can't keep it in anymore, and they mutter it under their breath. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them, trying to put some distance between them and this man named Jesus. And here's the moment that I love. 
Because I can only imagine what's going through Jesus' mind as he overhears that. Because remember, for three years he's been on mission for these people. And the religious leaders have never let up on him. They've never given him a break. In fact, they've done very little other than challenge him and insult the people that he's trying to love. And he's got to be thinking, really? I, you, I am about to go to Jerusalem and die for these people, and you are the one who's judging my actions and their worthiness? And that thing starts to get poked inside the heart of Jesus. And I believe that in this moment, Jesus is pushed right to the edge of his calm. We don't get it explicitly stated. There's no big physical or emotional reaction. But Jesus responds like a man who's had a nerve struck and he can't not say something. And what he does is he fires off not one, not two, but three parallel stories back to back to back. Repetition equals emphasis. And laced throughout these stories, you can just hear Jesus' patience bottoming out with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The stories he tells are what are now the famous stories of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. You can follow along as we go through them. The first two stories are nearly identical, at least in form, and they go like this. There is a precious thing. The precious thing gets lost. The owner of the precious thing who loves it dearly abandons everything else to go looking for it, and when it is found, he or she throws a ridiculously out-of-proportion block party. And unlike in some of the other parables, Jesus spoon-feeds us the explanation here. In the same way, I tell you, he says in verse 10, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Note the use of the word, sinner. Jesus is slapping the Pharisees in the face with their very description of the people that he is trying to minister. It's like he's saying to them, hey, you, you call these guys sinners. We call them children of God. We call them precious and loved. He's relabeling them, giving them a different identity. And to drive this point home, he personifies it all in the most famous story of all, the parable of the lost or prodigal son. And that story goes like this. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, you're dead to me. I want nothing more to do with you. So just give me whatever money you have and get out of my life. And the father does it. The son liquefies those assets, and he buys himself the best six months known to mankind, all the wine, women, and song he can take. And then, shock and awe, his money runs out, and he hits rock bottom. And with no money, no friends, and no food, this man ends up feeding pigs their slop, which is about the lowliest job that a Jewish man could have asked for. At some point, the threat of starvation knocks him upside the head, and he realizes what an idiot he's been. And so he heads home for his father's house, tail between his legs, practicing the groveling speech the whole way home and understanding full well that he does not deserve the welcome that he's about to ask for. But you see, in this story, the Father is God, who is much more loving and much more forgiving than any of us would ever be. And the Father does more than welcome his lost son home. He reinstates him in the family. And what's his reason? 
for the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate with what is in this case a not so ridiculously out of proportion block party. Now, back to back to back, the message of these three stories is abundantly clear. At the center of the heart of God are his children who are lost. God loves his children very much and he is preoccupied with finding them and bringing them home. That's why Jesus was spending time welcoming sinners into his life and eating with them in verse 2. That's why back in verse 1 it says they were all gathering around to hear him because they were responding to the love and acceptance that they were created to have but probably never experienced at the hands of another religious leader. And Jesus makes no apology that the father is going to throw a crazy party when they come home and when they find their identity in him. And here's the rub. He's going to throw more celebration even than over the ones who remained faithful. It's in verse 7. Check it out. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who do not need repentance. Now, fact, we are all sinners and we all need repentance. Jesus is not pointing out some cosmic loophole in which there are actually people who are perfect and have no sins of which they need to repent. But the Pharisees thought they were. They considered themselves perfect. They didn't believe they needed repentance. And Jesus is pointing that out. (laughs) So how do you think the people who believed they were perfect received the news that there will be more rejoicing over the sinners? I think they went ballistic. Are you kidding me? How is that fair? You're telling me that I can spend my whole life serving faithfully and never messing up, and I matter less than the idiot who goes and ruins his life doing whatever he wants, and he just says, I'm sorry at the end of it? That person is more loved by God than me? No. That's not what I'm saying, and it's not what Jesus is saying here either. You cannot miss the point of the gospel. Every single person is of infinite value to God. There is nothing more precious than his children, of which we are all one. Every single person was made in the image of God. Every single person was formed by him in their mother's womb. And every single person was worth the Son of God taking on human flesh and dying on a cross to save for eternity. But the plain fact is that children who are not lost are already safe, while the children who are lost are very, very much in danger. It's not that they are loved more. They're just in need of being rescued. The religious leaders were every bit God's children as the sinners, but you see, they already knew their father. They had already found their home Well, the people who were far from God were at risk of being lost for an eternity. Now think for a minute. How would you respond if one of your children was to go missing? If you didn't know they were home, if you didn't know that they were safe, how would you react? Anybody here ever had a missing child or been a lost child once? Well, I can tell you how I reacted. 
Because that happened to me about a year ago. One of my children went missing. We were home. Uh, we just finished dinner, and uh, the kids had scattered around the house, like kids do. My wife and I have four children. At this point in the story, they were nine, eight, six, and four. We accept prayers of all kinds. Uh, so I was heading back out of the house actually to go to Kid City Live rehearsal, and I like to make sure that my kids know I love them and I want to say goodnight and hug and kiss them each before I leave, so I made my rounds and I found three of them, my kids, but I, I couldn't find our six-year-old, Leah. And for those of you who don't know our family, that's actually not all that surprising. Leah is our strong-willed child. She is our decider, the one who doesn't need permission or explanation to do the things that she wants to do. You probably have one of those in your life, right? She's fun, she's fearless, she's charismatic. And so, when I didn't find her, I wasn't all that surprised or worried. I just asked my wife, hey, have you seen Leah? No, I haven't seen Leah. So I looked again. It had only been maybe 20 minutes since we were all together at dinner. And our house isn't that big. So I checked again, but to no avail. So now my wife joins the search. And we both go around the house calling for her now, maybe just a little louder than we have to. Leah, if you're here, come on out. It's not funny anymore. Daddy really needs to go. And then we start looking in some of our unusual places, you know, like the closet and under the couch and in her pajama drawer. Just, she's small, it happens. <laughs> and every next place we look, we expect to see her face right there, smiling, waiting to surprise us. Gotcha. And it was then that I noticed that the front door was cracked open. And for the first time that evening, real fright invaded my body. Because Leah is absolutely the kind of child who would leave the house and never, ever tell us. So we ran outside, and I'm trying to stay calm. And the first thing I did was a perimeter search. I don't see her. No Leah. My wife goes across the street to the corner gas station in the store thinking, okay, maybe she grabbed her purse, which is full of rocks and quarters, and maybe she went to go buy some candy because that's what she was just talking about doing. Well, I go over to the neighbor's house and I ask him, excuse me, have you seen Leah? She's, uh, she's this one. No? Okay, no? And I scan the street, straining my eyes to see if I can find that little purple shirt with rainbows and long brown pigtails. I don't see her. Where could she be? and time is starting to slow down. And then I see my wife coming across the street again, only she's not holding Leah's hand like I'd been praying she would. My wife was pale, her eyes were this big, and when we got together, she said to me the thing that I'd been thinking but didn't want to hear, Ryan, she's gone. Our six-year-old daughter was gone, missing, lost. I ran back in the house, fighting away images of vans pulled up in front of our house, desperately thinking, I, I, I must have missed something. She cannot be gone. And I ran through every room of the house, tearing it apart. I threw laundry and blankets and stuffed animals everywhere, screaming Leah's name at the top of my lungs. But there was no answer. She's really gone. And at some point, I called the police to alert them to the missing child in the neighborhood. And it was right about then that I noticed my other three children. They were huddled around the front steps, and all of them are crying and terrified. And my heart went out to them. 
and I did the only thing I could think to do as their father. I gathered them up, and I brought them inside the house, and I said to them, stay in the house. Whatever you do, do not leave the house. I need to go find your sister. I'll bring her back, I promise. And I got in my car, and I left my wife and my kids to go look for my missing daughter, no longer certain that I hadn't just lied to my children about the promise to bring Leah back. A couple of minutes after that, the police arrived at our house. And a couple of minutes after that, because of their expertise and ability to think more clearly, they found Leah. She was in our bed. <laughs> Dinner had ended and she crawled under the covers to take a nap and fell asleep dead to the world. She never heard my yelling, she didn't feel it when she was assaulted with laundry, and she never even knew anything had happened. So this six-year-old walks out of the room into chaos, blissfully unaware, and she says with some degree of strong-willed excitement, what happened? Why are the policemen here? And until that moment, I had never experienced the emotional mixed drink of overwhelming love and murderous thought together. <laughs> but we had our baby girl back. And in the end, our family, though shaken, was whole. And I know how fortunate my wife and I are, because I know that our story ends right where some others pick up. Maybe there are some of you who have had children who were lost, but for far longer and far more dangerous periods of time. Maybe some of you have children who are lost in other ways. They're far from you, far from God, and you just don't know, are they home? Are they safe? For some of you, the loss has yet to be ended, and for others, it's permanent. I cannot imagine having lived through that longer than we did. Leah was only gone for between 30 and 45 minutes, but for every second of that time, my every thought was consumed with her and finding her. So much so that I left the rest of my family alone to go find my missing daughter. Now, does that mean that I love Leah more than I love my other three children? Of course not. But they were home. They were safe. And Leah wasn't. And so I had to go looking for her. Just stay in the house, I remember saying. And I had to go. It wasn't a matter of choice, guys. She's my daughter. I had to go looking for her. What would you have done if this was your child? Would you have left and gone looking for her? Or would you have evaluated the situation, counted your loss, and said, well, three out of four ain't bad. What a horrifying thought, right? No parent would ever think that. Of course you would go looking for your missing child. And if we, who are broken, flawed, sinful people, know the length to which we would go to find our own missing children, how much more must God, a perfect and loving father, be consumed with wanting to find his missing children how much more must he be preoccupied when they're not home safe? And how much more must he celebrate when they are found again? When pushed 
right to the edge of his calm, Jesus gives us something special, a raw and vulnerable look at one of the most important things to him, the thing that defined his mission while he was here on earth. He even said it a couple chapters later in Luke 19.10. It's the key verse of the book of Luke. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It does not mean that children who are safe and faithful are unimportant. But while there are missing children of God still out there, that is what God's attention and his energy are going to be about. And that, guys, is the mission of the church. Unfortunately, not everybody thinks that this is fair or right or the way things should be done. And to see what I mean, we actually have to visit the ending of the story of this lost son. Because Jesus doesn't end the third story the same way he ends the first two, with the block party. He goes on to address the real issue, the reason he told the story in the first place, which is the attitude of the Pharisees over welcoming the sinners. So pick it up in verse 25, where we find the older son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. He was working. He was doing his duty. He was doing exactly what his father had been asking him to do. He'd never strayed. And I don't want you to miss the point that this older son is a good man, an honorable man, doing the right thing, who is equally loved by his father. But when he hears about the party... He's livid, and he refuses to come inside. The father, wanting all of his kids together, comes out and pleads with him, come in the house, but the son just can't get over the unfairness of it all. He says to his father in verse 29, look, all these years, I have never disobeyed. From the beginning, he has done what is right, just like the Pharisees did. And he goes on to explain to his father the unfairness of it all, how his brother's a screw-up and doesn't deserve this welcome, and how he should get a party instead. And the father responds to this older son with all the love in his heart. In verse 32, he says, But we had to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found in the face of all of the logical disagreement of the whole situation, the father can only respond by saying, but we had to celebrate. I'm sorry, son, but your brother's life is more important than your fairness. And the story closes with the older brother standing outside with his arms crossed. And the great irony of it all is that at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, the one who is lost is not the one who went prodigal. It's the older brother who has exiled himself outside the house of the father, refusing to do what was there because he didn't believe that what his father was up to was fair. And maybe, more than in any other story in scripture, each of us, is invited to find ourselves in the story of the lost son. So my question today is, where are you? Where are you in this story? Where are you on your journey? Where are you in your relationship with God? Maybe you're here today and you're one of the children who left home. Maybe you're angry at God. Maybe you just don't care. And you're on your own. You got things covered. Things are good. You've been making it work. 
or you're partying, having the time of your life, and you don't need God. Man, live it up. Have fun. It's not going to satisfy you. Not really. Not in the end. Because what you were created for was to be known and loved by your heavenly Father, and only through him can you have a truly abundant and truly satisfying life. Now, maybe you're here because you've been eating pig slop, and it's rock bottom, and you don't think things can get any worse, and so, tail between your legs, you crawl through the doors of a church, hoping against hope that there's something better out there. If that's you, I want you to know the first half of the mission of the church you stumbled into. Love people where they are. At hope, you will never be judged for what you have done. You will never be looked down upon for who you are or what baggage you bring through our door. Not here, not in this place, not by these people. But I don't want you to go without knowing this also. You have a father who loves you and is consumed with passion for finding you and bringing you home to be part of the family. And if you just start on your journey towards him, I believe with every fiber of my being that he will overwhelm you with his goodness and his love. And if that is you today, do not leave this place without talking to somebody about it. If you don't know somebody that you brought with you today, there are people waiting to talk to you and pastors who would love to hear your story and to talk with you about what your next step could be. Now maybe you're here and you're not lost at all. Maybe you're in the house and you're celebrating. You're rejoicing because you remember what it was like to be lost. And you know the kind of life that you have now that you are found. I hope you keep celebrating. I hope that never, ever dies for you because you have found your joy and I am so excited. But maybe you're here and you're a little frustrated. Frustrated at God. Frustrated at this church. Because we're not offering all the classes you want. And we're not playing the kind of music you prefer. And we're not teaching the Bible deep enough. And we're too big, too popular, too trendy. And if that's you, then you're actually one of the Pharisees in the story. Because when pushed to the edge of your calm, when you just can't not say something, you believe that Jesus should represent your interests, should be about the things you care about, should cater to your desires and do what's important to you. And you think maybe we've got this whole church thing wrong. Guys, if that's you, then you're lost because you've lost your perspective on what God is really all about. And you've lost your compassion for other people, your brothers and sisters who are not part of this family. And you've forgotten that you too were at one point a lost child and God went looking for you. But now, you're upset because you're not the center of attention. If that's you, then you really need this Profiler series because we are all gonna learn together that we don't get to make Jesus in our image. We must accept, believe in, and submit to him as he is, even if it doesn't suit us. And I want you to know that your church is gonna continue to do things that we believe are in line with the heart and mission of God. 
We're going to continue to do crazy things like shut down on the 4th of July weekend and throw parties with our neighbors. And we're going to spend a million dollars in money outside the walls of this building, taking the gospel to places around the world where the gospel is needed the most. And if that bothers you, I'm sorry, but send me an email. It's mikel at gethope.net, by the way. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. At the end of the story of Luke 15, at the end of that chapter, we actually don't get to find out exactly what the brother's response is. Does he come in or does he stay outside? I think it's on purpose. I think Jesus left that off because that's the decision that he's asking us to make. At the center of the heart of God are his children who are lost. Jesus the rescuer is going to welcome sinners and eat with them. God the Father is going to celebrate like crazy when they come home and they find their identity in him. You can join him or you can be left out in the cold. The choice is yours. But please, wherever you are today, don't stay lost. Come home. Come inside. Let's pray, guys. Father, I thank you for your crazy, reckless love that has gone to search for each of us. I thank you that you are consumed with love for each of us and that every single one of us was worth your son dying for our sins. I thank you for our redemption. I thank you that the new identity you have given us in Christ Jesus is that of a son or a daughter much loved by their father. And God, I pray that we would leave today not just thinking about where we are, but thinking about you and where you are and how much you want us to move forward in this story. God, I pray for myself and for everybody here that I would get over me, that I would be not, prou- not too proud to humble myself, deny myself, and then follow you wherever you would take us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus the rescuer. And thank you for redeeming our souls. It is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.